Thank you, choir and orchestra. Some of you have had the privilege of going to the Holy Lands, and some have been on Temple Mount. If so, you know there is a fountain there that is rather large. There are small stools sitting around it, and people go there to wash their feet before they enter the mosque for worship. Today we're going to look at the passage of Scripture where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. Now there are some denominations that believe Jesus gave the church an ordinance that is to be fulfilled and carried on by the church. Most, however, believe that this was an a lesson in humility. I think that Barnes probably reflects, reflects that notion more than others. He said it was a symbolical action inculcating a lesson of humility and intended to teach it to them in such a manner that it would be impossible for them ever to forget it. So today we're going to look at that story, that passage of Scripture where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. We'll begin reading in verse number 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I give you an example that you also should do as I did to you. As we look at this passage of Scripture, this story with which you are familiar, I believe that Jesus teaches us some lessons about ministry as His followers. The first lesson is the ministry of restoration. Now you'll see there in verse number 9, Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. When a person comes to Jesus Christ and is saved, then they are cleansed. The scripture says that they 
are cleansed from their sin and their sin is removed as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. So when a person comes to trust Christ as Savior, the Bible says that we are washed in the shed blood of Jesus, therefore we are cleansed from our sin. However, as we go through life, we walk through the dirt of sin and get sin on us. All right? When one is saved, that person is completely cleansed of sin. That's what Jesus said to Peter. Peter said, well, then wash my heads and my hands and all of me. Jesus said, no, you're already clean, but you have dirt on your feet. You have sin on your feet, and you need that washed. So when we come to Christ, we are cleansed of our sin, but as we go through life, we get sin on us. In fact, there are different words used in the Bible to refer to sin. The word trespass, which means to slip, to fall. Okay, so sometimes we slip in the sin. We've been saved, but we slip in the sin. We fall in the sin. It's not intentional. It's not what we intended to do but we slip into sin. For instance, I would contend that no one gets married planning to have an affair. No one takes a drink planning to become an alcoholic. No one smokes a joint planning to become a drug addict. No one takes a job planning to embezzle from the job. But as we go through life, sometimes there is trespass. We fall into sin. We slip into sin, not what we intended, but it happens. The other word uh, I would refer to is hamartia, which is a hunting word. It means to miss the mark. So the idea then is someone is shooting at something and they miss it. And that happens to us. We have high ideals as the people of God. We have a high standard as the people of God. We want to hit the target, but sometimes we do not, correct? That's what Paul was talking about when he said, those things I don't want to do, I do. Those things I do want to do, I fail to do. So sometimes we simply miss the mark. In fact, uh, there are many examples of God's finest, the saints we revere, we look up to and they also fell into sin. For instance, Noah. The Bible says that Noah was a righteous man. And in Genesis 6 verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now that's a fairly good recommendation, would you say? Noah was a righteous man. He was a blameless man. He walked with God, but Noah fell into sin. After the flood had ended we see Noah drunk. The Bible says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk. Now that is after the flood. And the Bible says that drunkenness is a sin. So here is Noah, a righteous man, a blameless man, a man who walked with God, and then we see him drunk. Another example would be David. The scripture says of David that he was a man after God's own heart. There's no doubt in my mind but that David loved God. I read the Psalms regularly and uh, 
you can tell that David just had this passion for God, this love for God. And yet David also fell into sin. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He lied. He did all of these things that he did with which you are familiar. And in Psalm chapter 51, he confesses his sin and asks God for forgiveness. In Psalm 51 verse 2, David prayed, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So here is David, a man who was after God's own heart. He loved God, but somehow he slipped into sin. He fell into sin. Maybe he missed the mark as well. There's Simon Peter. Peter promised loyalty to the Lord. He said, Jesus, if everybody else falls away, I'm going to be faithful to you. Jesus, if everyone else falls away, I am committed to you. And yet it was Simon Peter who denied the Lord three times. The Bible says in Matthew 26, and again he denied it with an oath and said, I do not know the man. The truth is, ladies and gentlemen, when we trust Jesus Christ, we are forgiven of our sin. We are born into the family of God. We become a new creation. But as we go through life, we end up with sin on our feet. We end up with sin in our lives. I heard about a pastor who was preaching on sinless perfection. And he was saying that, that we all walk in, in this world and get sin on our lives and so forth. And he made his point, felt that he had done a fairly good job. And at the end he said, does anybody now, is there anyone here who knows anyone who does not sin? Well, there was a man in the back who lifted his hand, surprised the pastor. He said, do you know someone who does not sin? He said, yes, sir. Well, who, who, who would it be? He said, my wife's first husband. <laughs> we, we all walk through life and get sin on us even after being saved. So my question is, what is your attitude towards another Christian who sins? What is your attitude about someone who is a believer and they fall into sin? How do you deal with that? John Bradford was walking down the street one day. He saw a drunk staggering down the street and he said to the person next to him, but for the grace of God, there go I. What is your attitude? When someone falls into sin, what is your attitude? You see, ladies and gentlemen, your attitude is important because it will determine your response to that person. Now, the legalist condemns the one who sins. The legalist is the person when he sees another Christian sin, he condemns it. Why is that? Why would someone condemn the other person? Why? Well, sometimes it is because they believe that they live above sin, that this person has sinned, but I do not. Now, that was the Pharisees. The attitude of the Pharisees was, I'm okay, you're not. And so Jesus, because of that, told the story about the Pharisee and the publican who went into the temple to pray and the Bible says that the publican was very humble. He bowed before the Lord and just said, be merciful to me. Very humble. But when the Pharisee prayed, the Bible says in Luke 18, 11, 
the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. You see, sometimes there are those people who condemn because they are legalist and they believe that they do not sin or that they are better than another person who falls into sin. And so they condemn that person. Sometimes the legalist condemns another person in order to divert attention from their own sin. Now, if I can get everyone talking about your sin, then we're not going to talk about mine, right? If I can point out your failures, then we are going to forget about my failures. If I can point out how badly you have failed, then I will divert attention away from my own failures. Churches do that as well. I have noticed through the years that I have served as pastor that when a church does not do what the Lord has called the church to do, then they become critical of the church who is doing that. I learned that in the first church I pastored. We had a revival. People were getting saved in the little town where we were. They were trusting the Lord, but there was another pastor in town who sent an article to the newspaper saying that they are just rice Christians. These people coming forward professing faith in Christ or rice Christians, meaning that they are simply coming forward for a bowl of rice. So what's your attitude? Dr. Criswell, former pastor of First Baptist Dallas, said, I have often thought that if I ever fell into a fault, oh God, do not, do not let me fall into the hands of those censorious, critical judges in the church. Let me fall into the hands of the barkeepers, the street walkers, the dope peddlers, and the pushers. Well, that might seem a little extreme, but it does make the point. What is your attitude towards another person who falls into sin? You see, ladies and gentlemen, those who have tasted the grace of God are committed to restore those who have fallen. And I think that was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul referred to himself as the chief sinner. He said, I am the chief of sinners. That's the way Paul saw himself. A benefactor of the grace of God, but he saw himself as the chief sinner. Now, maybe that was the reason he was willing to restore John Mark. Perhaps you remember the story in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas and John Mark went on a missionary journey and right in the middle of it, John Mark decided to go back home. I don't know why, but he quit. Maybe he had a girlfriend back there. I don't know what it was, but he decided to go back home and he just left them. Well, Paul was incensed by it. He was really aggravated that John Mark had left. So later when Paul and Barnabas were going on another missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. And Paul said, no, he's not going. He quit the last time. He is not going. So he was still aggravated about it. But then from a Roman prison, Paul wrote, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Restore him. Even though he had failed, even though he had quit, Paul said, pick up Mark and bring him with you, he is useful to me. Restore him. 
That is what the Lord has called us to do, and I believe that is a part of what this, this uh, teaching is. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul wrote, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. What is that? Well, it's, it speaks of the ministry of restoration, that, that, that we, get, we get dirt on our feet. We get sin but we are to restore that person. And then there is the ministry of comfort. Sometimes when you're walking on the beach, you know, you enjoy being out on the beach, but you get that sand all over your legs and on you. Don't you enjoy getting back to the room and taking a shower? I mean, washing, washing that off. Well, the same thing is true in a spiritual sense. You see, Christian sin, and we've already established that in 1 John chapter 1, verse number 8. John wrote, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So he was writing to Christian people, and that's what John said. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And yet religion has very little comfort for those who fall in, into sin. John tells a story about a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She was brought to Jesus. And in John chapter 8, verse number 3, the Bible says, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, why did they do that? Here they find a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. They bring her to Jesus, throw her down at the feet of Jesus, and say, Moses says that we are to stone such a person. What do you say? Why did they do that? Well, because they wanted to publicly humiliate her. Not a lot of comfort there. They wanted to publicly humiliate her. As I looked at that story, it reminds me of some of the reality TV programs that are on. They bring people on there and humiliate them publicly. I think, why in the world would you go on that show? You know what they're going to do. Well, that's what, the, that's what the Pharisees did. They brought this woman for the purpose of publicly humiliating her. And then they gave a very harsh recommendation in John 8, 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Jesus, here's a woman, caught her in the act of adultery. Moses said we are supposed to stone her. What do you say? What do you say that we are supposed to do. Well, you know, the thing that's interesting to me is that though they were quoting Moses, they only quoted a portion of the command. Because in Leviticus chapter 20, verse number 10, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Where was the man? We're going to stone the woman, but where is the man? If we're going to do what Moses said, he said stone them both. But they were only interested in humiliating the woman. Folks, it is our job to comfort those who have fallen. That, that's what the foot washing in part is about, comforting those who have fallen. Tolstoy, the Russian writer was walking down the street one day. There was a beggar who came up to him begging for alms. Tolstoy said, please don't be angry with me, my brother, but I have nothing with me. If I did, I would gladly give it to you. 
the beggar said, you have given me more than I asked for. You call me brother. But we, folks, as the people of God, we are to comfort those who fall. And in the story about the woman caught in the act of adultery, Jesus comforted her. First of all, he extended forgiveness to her. He said, neither do I condemn you. And he offered her comfort. He says, go and sin no more. Jesus comforted. Barnabas was a comforter. His name means son of encouragement. You know the story after Paul became a believer in Christ that the disciples didn't want to have anything to do with him. And I don't blame them. I would have been scared of him too. He was killing Christians. But Barnabas recommended him. The Bible says Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas was a comforter. He comforted Paul. Paul had a background in which he persecuted the church, but Barnabas comforted him. Folks, we are to be comforters. That's a part of the story, I think. We are to be comforters. We are to comfort fallen church members. Jesus restored Peter in John chapter 21. We are to restore fallen family members. Let me ask you. Is there someone in your family who has fallen and you have not had anything to do with them? See, we're to be comforters. We are to restore and comfort. What about your students? Do you have a classmate who has fallen by the wayside? Well, it's a whole lot easier to throw stones at them, isn't it? To cut yourself off from them, isn't it? But if I understand the story that Jesus gives here, we are to restore and comfort. Thirdly, I think that it teaches a ministry of unity because it was the washing of feet. Unity. And I, and I know that unity is important to the Lord. Because as Jesus was praying in John chapter 17, verse number 21, he says that they may all be one. Even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. Jesus prayed for the unity of his people, for the people of God. He prayed for our unity. And the Apostle Paul gives some insight, I think, in, into unity, how it works in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And as I looked at that passage of Scripture, Paul is speaking about the unity of the body of Christ there. The first thing you have to do is to recognize that we are different. Until you recognize that we are different, then there can be no unity. And so he uses the physical body to illustrate that. In that passage of Scripture, Paul says the body is one, but there are many parts to it. There is one body, but there is a heart that pumps the blood. There is a brain that thinks, eyes that see, ears that hear, hands that pick things up. He says, so the body then is one, but there are many parts to it. And then he applies that to the spiritual body, that we are different. For instance, Steve can do the music. Wes does education. Chad, our newest staff member, is... Working with the children just does an absolutely fabulous. So we're so excited about him being here. Richard, 
He provides compassion. Philip, Scott, Rob, they work with the students. Point is, is that we are different, see? We, we have different gifts. We have different ministries. So we recognize that we are different, but we have to recognize that we are dependent on each other. Now, that's a part of, of Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he's talking about unity. We are different, but we are dependent. For instance, I, there are many parts to the body, but there's one body, and uh, they all work together. For instance, I, and I noticed that when I had surgery on my knee, do you know the rest of the body joined in the process? I mean, when they put the knee to sleep, I, the rest of me went to sleep too. And then when, uh, when I went home and had to rest for a while, my knee had to rest for a while, well, my back just lay right down with the knee and my arms, legs, and so forth. When I had to go to therapy, the rest of my body accompanied my knee, went with it. So we are dependent on each other. That was the point that Paul is making. So we are different, but we are dependent. And so when one member, listen, when one member fails, we all suffer. When one member succeeds, we all celebrate. We're different, but we're dependent. I preach a little bit. Steve, without Steve, there would be no music. Without Wes, there would be no discipleship. Without Sylvia, there would be no TV. Without Keith, there would be no fun. <laughs> so Jesus is emphasizing the, the, the unity that we wash each other's feet. So when I look at the story of, of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, to me, I think it speaks of the ministry of restoration that we restore each other when we get dirt on our feet. I believe that it speaks about the, the ministry of comfort, that we comfort each other as the people of God. And it speaks about the ministry of unity, that we are different, but we're dependent on each other. See, where we get in trouble, folks, we want everybody to be just like me. I'm so glad you're not like me. I am really boring. I, I, tell, I tell Linda, I said, you know, she is, uh, she brings a lot of life to my life because I, I do the same thing over and over and over again. I'm glad she's not like me. And I'm glad that you have different spiritual gifts. You have different emphasis and things you're interested in. So when I look at the story, that's what I see. It's about ministry. So what does that mean? Then, well, we're sharing suffering. We're sharing each other's suffering. There was a little girl who came home from school. She told her mom about her friend who had fallen down that day, and she scratched her, scraped her leg really badly. And her mama said, well, honey, what did you do? She said, I just sat down and cried with her. Sometimes that's the best thing to do. You just sit down and cry with them. But you share in suffering, and you share in service. Probably most of us enjoy Les Mis. It's a story by Victor Hugo of Jean Valjean, who stole a loaf of bread to feed his sister's starving children. 
He was arrested and imprisoned for 19 years. When he got out, he couldn't get a job. So he went to the house of a bishop looking for help, and while he was there, he stole some plates. Well, they caught him. They brought him back to the house of the bishop. The bishop knew what had happened, felt compassion for him. And he said, yes, I gave him the plates, and he forgot to take the candlesticks. And that one act of compassion turned the sinner to the Savior. And I think, my friend, whenever they, the world sees you and me washing the feet of others, that they're going to be more inclined to want to know about the Jesus of which we speak. Father, I thank you for the example you gave to us. I thank you for the ministry you've called us to. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we might reach out to those who have fallen, to restore them, to comfort them, that we might be one in Jesus Christ. Bless this invitation time, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and extend an invitation. The choir will sing. If you're here without Christ, I invite you to come and trust Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open. We'd love to have you as a part of our family. Stand with me, please. As we stand together, you come. I'll greet you as you do.